Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Greg Schill, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Iowa College of Law. We will discuss his article, Should Law Subsidize Driving, which will be published by the NYU Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. Yeah. So as you know, I'm a huge fan of this paper, which I think is both like incredibly substantively important, but also um, incredibly moving. Um, and I hope we can get into both of those in the course of, of the podcast. Uh, but I got to say, I also really love your deployment of, of better just law in the title of, of your paper, because really the answer couldn't be a more, a more forceful no. Right. I mean, the question is, should law subsidize driving? And that's not a hypothetical question, even. Um, so I was wondering if you'd start by just sort of in a broad sense, talking um, a little bit about how law subsidizes driving, because not all of the examples that you give are really intuitive. And I think maybe if you frame for listeners kind of how you're conceptualizing subsidies, it might be helpful for people to understand the argument that you're making. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the framing I chose is a provocative one, um, not for the mere reason to provoke, but because I want to get people to uh, ask themselves whether the law does um, play favorites with transportation modes, which is not a topic that has been addressed thus far in the literature. There's a planning literature on it. There's an economics literature, sociology, and so forth but not law as such. Um, so to frame it, I think it's probably helpful to talk about the status quo. Um, mm. You know, many, most of us drive every day, um, but we are numb, I think, to the toll. Um, so nothing except heart disease and cancer claims more lives in the United States uh, than motor vehicles. For the last, each of the last three years, 40,000 people per year have been killed in car crashes. Uh, about a quarter of those are outside the vehicle, and about 30,000 are, are drivers and passengers. Um, on top of that, and that's a statistic you may have seen, it's been in the papers a lot because it's been mm. increasing, which, which is also a uniquely U.S. trend relative to our uh, wealthy peers. Uh, on top of that, there's another 53,000 people that are killed every year by emissions. Um, and here I'm not just talking about tailpipe emissions, but also uh, other types of vehicle emissions, such as from brake pads and tires that are responsible for about 85, 90% of particulate uh, matter that is uh, generated by cars and that can cause cancer and, and myriad other health problems. So we're talking about a universe of about 93,000 deaths per year so way more than guns or opioids. Um, so, and on top of that, we have another uh, set of injuries that is around four and a half million every year, four and a half million serious mm -hmm. injuries uh, requiring medical attention. Um, so this is, uh, to me, plainly a public health crisis. Um, mm -hmm. It is rarely talked about as such. Um, to quantify it, uh, the U.S. Department of Transportation has a methodology of determining how much a life is worth. Um, so just looking at the deaths, not looking at the, the millions and millions of injuries and many other second-order effects, 
about $893 billion a year is lost, is stolen from our uh, economy, really from our social uh, system, from our society, by cars. It crashes, but it's also emissions. Um, and that it wipes out the GDP of uh, 11 U.S. states. So we're we're a 39-state country in this regard, um, mm. and and we haven't even gotten into the distribution of those losses, which fall most heavily on the most vulnerable, um, mm-hmm. people with disabilities, children, the elderly, people who are poor, um, and people of color. Mm-hmm. And so in the paper, you argue on many different levels and in many different areas that these aren't just incidental costs, but actually costs that are imposed or at least increased by policy choices that we actually made intentionally or maybe in some cases by sort of almost quasi-accidentally falling into those choices. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the different areas, kind of broadly speaking, in which you see the subsidy of cars, the kind of uh, official subsidy of cars as being most egregious. Yeah, so um, I think we're aware, at least at a high level, of the uh, fiscal subsidies for cars um, for the last 50 to 80 years. Um, Here I'm talking about diverting public transit money to highways, um, using urban, so-called urban renewal funds for highways, making highways free um, while uh, continuing to jack up fares for underperforming transit and so forth. So we could have a whole policy conversation about it, but you're absolutely right. And that's really the focus of the paper is, is to talk about the law. Uh, How does the law do this? It has policy origins, which are relatively well known. Then there are also cultural origins as well. My claim is not that law is the primary vector here, but rather that it cements these pre-existing preferences and also legitimizes them because it Mm. gives us a way to say, you know what, that's okay. It's okay that this three-year-old was killed by a reckless driver who faced no jail time and a trivial fine um, because that's inevitable. It's an accident. Even that word, of course, implies uh, exculpation. So the categories that I talk about in the paper are numerous. Um, and I should mention here that this is going to become a book project. It will be published, This uh, a version of the draft that's on SSRN will be published in the NYU Law Review, which I'm thrilled about. Um, but I've also been approached by publishers about writing a book based on the same subject, which, which is something that I'm pursuing where I can expand a little bit more on it. Um, so some of these areas of law that subsidize driving. Um, the first that I talk about in the paper, which no uh, legal academic has really has not talked about to date, is traffic law. Mm. The, the extremely boring and mundane everyday process of determining what is a lawful turn and what is not, what is a lawful speed, what is not, and also the gap between what is lawful and what is enforced. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, the paper, I start talking about speed limits. Um, we all know that speed limits are not enforced in a sincere way. They are what a colleague of mine in a recent paper has called an example of insincere rules. Um, there isn't a jurisdiction in the country where uh, most people will get a ticket for going one mile an hour over the speed limit, um, or even 10 miles an hour. Um, there is data on this, and 
uh, it is common to not receive a ticket under the 10 mile an hour over the limit mark, which uh, tracks, I think, most people's personal experience. Um, so that's, that's well known. Um, what's not well known is the process for setting and resetting speed limits. Um, that's done usually uh, in the first instance by statute, but then they are adjusted with uh, great flexibility by local departments of transportation. Uh, and they're done so they're adjusted in accordance with something called the MUTCD, which is the Federal Highway Administration's Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices. Mm. This is a thrilling document, which is probably why you don't see a lot of scholarship on it uh, outside of the engineering space um, and to some extent public health. Um, it's, uh, it's in its ninth decade now. It's been revised a number of times. It is ancient in many respects. Um, it does not include many discussions of safety. It's really focused on motorist convenience and minimizing motorist delay. Um, this, you know, for purposes of speed limits, this manifests through something called the 85th percentile rule, which provides that uh, a speed limit will be set by statute and then adjusted based on the 85th percentile of speed at which cars are traveling in free moving traffic on the road. So to make this concrete, if you're in a residential area, the speed limit is 30 miles an hour. Most people drive 35. We'll even say at rush hour, it slows down to 25. That's not free moving traffic under the definition of the MUTCD. Free moving traffic is at 35. If 85% of the drivers are going 35, then the speed limit will be bumped up to 35. Hmm. If that happens again, so once it's bumped up, let's say the 85th percentile shifts to 40 miles an hour, the local DOT will often bump it up again to 40 miles an hour. And now you're at a speed where most people, if hit by a car, will die. Mm -hmm. There's a huge drop-off in survivability from 30 miles an hour to 40 miles an hour. There's also one, by the way, between 20 and 30, especially for senior citizens. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, this is a process that is ostensibly mechanical, but it's only mechanical because local DOTs choose to apply this federal policy as a matter of law, um, even though the policy itself states that it admits of flexibility. Um, so that's one example of uh, what I would consider uh, an unscientific basis that really has adverse public health consequences uh, that's embedded fundamentally in law because this, this is enacted by state at the state level um, and uh, originates at the level of a federal agency. And one of the, the examples that really hit me as a predominantly pedestrian and, and cyclist and like so many of the things that you describe in your paper are things that I sort of background noticed all the time. And once I read your paper, it was like, I couldn't help but think of how that practice is exactly the thing that's killing people every single day. And one of the ones that really hit me as both an example of like something incredibly dangerous inexperience and also kind of so cemented in the sort of normative expectations and kind of self-righteousness of drivers is the right-hand turn on a red. Yeah. So th this is a, a great example of how, uh, so I should just pause and say local advocates who try to change the rules to make them more safe always face 
a wall of resistance from local DOTs and uh, planning commissioners um, who always want to run lots of studies that cost millions of dollars and take years, and which, by the way, they often then don't implement. Miami-Dade was recently discovered, spent $80 million on traffic studies that they then sat on. Um, but uh, to make the original changes that gave us these highways through downtown and these rules like turning on red is legal and um, setting the speed limits at 85% and so forth, these were all done with either a thin scientific basis or no basis. So the, this, the rule that you're talking about is a product of energy legislation during the 1970s that actually will punish um, state and local governments by withholding federal energy conservation funds if they don't adopt a rule that allows not just right on red, but actually left on red as well from a one way to another one way. Um, these are extremely dangerous conditions for pedestrians because um, drivers, and this isn't a knock on drivers, I'm a driver, I'm guessing you're a driver. Um, mm. You know, depending on the circumstances, we're all pedestrians or drivers or transit users. So um, anyway, a human being can't really size up all of the relevant uh, threats while doing a turn. For a long time here, I could digress, but to keep it brief, you know, left turns were actually banned in cities because the left turn is such an intrinsically difficult um, typology of turn. But even a right turn on red is difficult. Um, primarily, the driver is looking to the left to make sure they don't get hit by a car coming from the vehicle lane and can't look simultaneously to the left and to the right where a pedestrian walk signal is usually timed to coincide um, uh, with the with the red light. Um, so meaning they could they could run over a pedestrian who was walking directly in front of the vehicle with the light. Um, and that happens quite often. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's an example I talk about um, in the paper. There, there are other examples. Um, I think, you know, the one that I alluded to a few minutes ago, the definition of an accident, I mean, this is a huge mm -hmm. one. Um, so why do we use this term? This is a, this is a legal conclusion um, that something was an accident. If somebody is going double the speed limit and kills a child, why do we call that instinctively an accident? Um, we see this used repeatedly, really almost exclusively in the context of cars. Of course, we talk about accidents in many contexts, but um, we use it as a euphemism for cars in a, in a unique way, um, almost the way we use it when we talk about uh, a child having an accident, which of course has a different meaning. Mm. Um, and uh, that's not, that is not, if you will, an accident. Um, that is a product of uh, a significant amount of organization by the auto industry in the 1920s in response to efforts to push back on motor vehicles, which at the time were, killing urban children uh, by the thousands. Um, in 1922, there was a mar march of 10,000 children in New York protest the so-called motor killings. Uh, two years later, there's a, an editorial on the front page of the New York Times with a, um, with a sensationalized uh, cartoon accompanying it with a, a reckless motorist driving over um, dead children. It's, it was a really a different time. Um, Peter Norton, who's a historian at UVA, has done really yeoman's work in digging up some of the early histories of, mm. uh, of our shift over to a car-first, uh, really speed-first paradigm. Um, anyway, so, so but this, this accident thing, it's not just in popular discourse, it's actually in the law. 
when you file, if you get into a crash, you, in most states, some have updated it, most haven't, you actually file an accident, motor vehicle accident report. Um, those reports, are, you're also supposed to file one if you're a cyclist and you're in a collision that results in either a certain level of, in, either any personal injury or a certain level of financial damage to your cyclist, to your bicycle. Mm-hmm. The form is, is the same. So this is the second issue is that the, literally the, the legal paperwork you have to fill out, you have to doctor because you're supposed to be circling parts of the car that are damaged. You're supposed to be describing the road conditions. Well, you know, there are boxes to check, but different road conditions are dangerous for bicyclists. You know, some, some, um, detritus on the, in the bike lane, uh, that caused you to go into traffic. That's not dangerous for a car that, that there's no box for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's a whole, uh, sort of back end of the regime that, um, that makes it, difficult, uh, to receive equal rights. And, and, and I really couldn't help, but feel reading your paper. There's a way that the kind of the subtle structuring of the law feeds into and reinforces people's sense of their entitlement and the way they're entitled to drive that just exacerbates massively the kinds of dangerous, incredibly dangerous behaviors that, that you're talking about, you know, like you gave a very, I think, charitable description of the kind of right on red problem. I mean, my experience has often been that a non-trivial percentage of drivers seem to believe that they are entitled to essentially have right of way over pedestrians, even in the crosswalk when they want to make a right turn on a red light. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's right. It's one could, you know, that's a, sort of an overdetermined problem. Um, there are number, meaning there are too many causes to really sort them out, but I do think law is part of that. Um, we have a licensing regime that is incredibly lax, um, basically everywhere in the country. I don't know how many States teach you, uh, that you are actually required to yield way to a pedestrian in a crosswalk and that a crosswalk is defined uh, a little differently state to state, but generally as um, anything, any, uh, a way to cross the street at an intersection where there are curb cuts, those, those uh, ramps on either side of the street, mm-hmm. whether or not it is marked, whether mm-hmm. or not there is a signal with a, uh, a pedestrian signal. That is a legal crosswalk, and that could even be mid-block. It doesn't even have to be at an intersection. Sometimes mm. you'll see those curb cuts in that circumstance. Mm-hmm. My mom used to say when we, we lived off of a major road um, when I grew up in Michigan, and she, you know, we would sometimes walk into the middle of the road and wait for traffic to clear on the other side. Um, and she used to say, you have to be born on the other side of the road, um, which it, it did feel that way sometimes. And we were doing that at what was a legal crosswalk, I don't mm-hmm. think drivers know that. And that is partly a function of law because we don't require drivers to know that. And we don't enforce crosswalk violations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, I mean, and that was something as well. It's like, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, oh, it was an accident, you know, which I agree with you. It's just such a bizarre formulation when someone's driving recklessly or negligently, you know, I mean, it's an accident that was predetermined to happen because of their mm-hmm. behavior. But it also seems like there's such egregious unenforcement by the police of everything from from speed limits all the way down to all of those other kinds of, again, incredibly dangerous traffic behaviors that, you know, they don't injure or kill someone every single time, 
but allowing people to do it and not stopping them from doing it just incredibly, you know, increases the risks of those kinds of, of injuries and deaths. I, you know, this is probably part of a, a larger conversation, um, which I would love to get into at some point. I couldn't agree more. Um, this is one reason why advocates have turned away from enforcement as a goal. Not that it's not important, but the focus now is on design. Mm. Um, so making streets comply with something called Vision Zero, which mm. is originally a Swedish uh, program to eliminate traffic fatalities and serious injuries. That's something that federal DOT, so U.S. DOT has signed off on, as well as uh, over 40 states and cities in the U.S. Um, and um, the only way to get there, you know, we're not going to arrest our way to that goal. Um, there, there aren't enough cops. And frankly, do we even want that, um, you know, where uh, we, we live in a world of hyper enforcement. Um, mm-hmm. But rather, we can design streets according to the Vision Zero standard. And there, if you go to Vision Zero Streets. I believe it's org or com. Um, you can see some examples of this. It's, it's a rare case where a podcast is, is not the best vehicle for explaining <laughs> it. But, but here we're talking about narrowing the length that a pedestrian has to cross the street um, by doing what's called a bump out so that the distance is shorter. This gives the pedestrian more comfort. It also cues cars to look to a smaller uh, zone of conflict um, when mm. they're turning uh, or, or proceeding. Um, it calls for road diets, which are shrinking the, the width of the road, often to back what it was before it was widened um, in the 1950s. Um, there's a whole set of reforms. I think we should also talk about whether we even really want the police doing traffic enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not clear to me that the same agency that turns up when you've got a burglary is the mm-hmm. one you want um, stopping people for turning, uh, you know, making an illegal left turn. Um I, you know, so that, that's, as I say, I think that's part of a broader conversation, but to maybe touch on a couple of these other subsidies that are sure, a little yeah. less, um, maybe less obvious to folks. Um, so another huge category is land use. Mm. Um, so we have primarily at the local level, um, a thicket of land use rules that basically outlaw city building in the United States. There's no city in America you could build today under current zoning rules. Um, there are even some cities like Somerville, Massachusetts, where I lived uh, as a fellow at Harvard before moving out to Iowa, um, has 80,000 people. 22 of its buildings you could build today lawfully under its zoning code at most. That's a charitable view of the current zoning rules. Um, so we have these charming, um, old, old-timey old kind of downtowns and historic neighborhoods that are much beloved and now property prices are through the roof because there's so few of them. And they tend to be so close to job centers. And it's illegal. Literally, you will go to jail. If you build a building, you won't be able to get a permit. And mm. then if you try to do it, they will cart you off to jail. So it's that's a slight germanization. But the point is, through um, Euclidean zoning, um, which originally had a, a racial element known as racial zoning or racial counterpart known as racial zoning, which was struck down, uh, but has been incorporated de facto through Euclidean zoning. And that's, this is and, youth and so zoning. What is, what is Euclidean zoning? Yeah. So that's what says, you know, you, you can't put, um, a business, you can't run a, um, you know, a dentist office out of the back of your house, or you can't put up a multifamily apartment building in a neighborhood of single family homes. It might sound kind of benign um, 
on the, you know, in the abstract, or maybe even a little misguided, but not perverse, but it's actually extremely pernicious. Um, what it does is, and, and what it did starting from the very beginning, it's not like this is new, we just don't see it because it's already happened. Um, it put uh, uses that had negative externalities, like um, heavy industry and so forth, it pushed those to black and brown neighborhoods and poor white neighborhoods. Um, and it also prohibited people from building larger buildings in established wealthy neighborhoods. The only way that normal people can afford to live in extremely desirable areas is through density. Think about what it would cost to build a big house, like a home alone style home in uh, the middle of midtown Manhattan. Right? <laughs> cost a fortune, not because building it would cost all that much, but because the land could otherwise be occupied by a skyscraper and uh, the owner of the skyscraper could charge astronomical rents to people all the way up the, the building. Um, so in order to uh, outbid for that land, you need more than one person. You've got to have a bunch of different people who are able to pay into that end product. That's density. That's population density. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how poor people and middle class and even upper middle class people can access the agglomeration economies of the 21st century. But also historically, that is um, how cities have achieved scale and how society has, has really functioned. Um, and so yeah, it's only for the last hundred years that we've had these restrictions. We had plenty of other social problems, as you know, um, but not this one. This is a creature adapted to the Jim Crow um, world and then later adapted again to the Brown versus Board of Education world. Um, and I could go on about the racial elements, but just on the, on the form factors. So we have something called floor area ratios as well as minimum lot requirements Um, These are ways of restricting land use that require people to build on large, uh, large plots and only to do it with single family homes. Um, Most housing in most cities in America is single family homes, single family detached houses. Um, That's true in almost every city in America. And even in places like New York, where you would think that is not the case, um, you get out to Staten Island, you get out to Queens beyond the subway and Brooklyn mm-hmm. as well, um, and parts of the Bronx, and you'll find uh, loads and loads of single-family homes. Even so, New York is a little unique, um, but what I'm saying is still true for San Francisco, Seattle, um, and many other cities that we think of as being very dense and very big. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, and 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 clearly this means that there's a bias in favor of driving because people don't have an alternative. Thank you for picking that up. Yes. Um, right. So, uh, that's absolutely right. You know, when you live, um, a mile even from the closest grocery or even three quarters of a mile, or how often are you going to walk? Um, and of course it's not just the distance that, that matters. It's also the environment. Um, when I, I clerked for a judge in Houston and I lived a mile, I was, I went down there for a weekend, grabbed an apartment. It was a mile from the courthouse. I was all happy about it. I had to jaywalk across a freeway off ramp every day um, in order to do the walk. And then while I was walking, not on the jaywalking part, but the rest of it, um, people would pull over and ask if I was okay. They, they wondered why this um, sort of overdressed uh, person was walking when um, I didn't seem to be uh, unhoused. So <laughs> it was, it was just crazy, but yes. So the, the net effect of all of this uh, anti-density regulation 
is um, to is to force people to drive, um, mm-hmm. and that's um, and, yeah. The word jaywalking is is itself an invention um, explicitly of the auto industry uh, of the nineteen teens and twenties. Um, so as you can see, it's our you know I've apparently absorbed it. Can't, can't yeah get it yeah out of you completely. yeah. Well, and that was a fascinating part of the paper where you kind of talk about the development of the ideology of the automobile as sort of like training and reifying the idea that automobiles are normal and everything else isn't. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And I think that's tremendously sad. If I can just say as somebody who now I grew up in the Midwest and now I'm back in the Midwest. And I think the conversation among urbanists on some of these issues can take on a little bit of a um, cloistered tone uh, where people in New York are talking to people in San Francisco, that kind of thing. Um, You know, this affects everybody. Um, About half of the pedestrian deaths in the United States every year occur on highways. Most people are not walking by the side of the highway. Now, sometimes they are because um, we do a terrible job of building safe walking infrastructure um, next to state highways. And state highways here sometimes have speed limits that are you know, low enough that it wouldn't be crazy to walk alongside it. And in small towns, um, I can say having been to some of them, especially in Iowa, sometimes Mm -hmm. the main drag is actually a state highway. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, some people are really walking on these roads, but um, a lot of them are not. They have cars that have broken down um, and they're dealing with that um, or they're state troopers. There's been a huge jump in deaths of state troopers um, usually on the side of, of highways. Um, that's not a huge number numerically, but it is a disturbing trend. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, we are all pedestrians at some point. Um, the, you know, even walking to your car in a parking lot in a strip mall, if you are struck by a car by a motorist and killed, you will be classified by the statistics as a pedestrian. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're all, we're all pedestrians at some point. Um, and moreover, you know, Cars and our transportation system, but specifically cars, are the number one contributor to greenhouse gases in the United States now. We've made just about everything more efficient. Um, We haven't made driving more efficient. We've made fuel economy of literal cars more efficient, but people have shifted to SUVs um, and car companies have exploited a loophole in our environmental regulation um, to, to encourage that. Mm. Um, and so our, our overall, um, level of car emissions is flat to rising. Um, so this is a huge problem from a, from a climate perspective. It also has these safety ramifications. We should want people to walk, to bike, to take the bus. Um, you know, we've all been stuck behind a bus and gotten kind of frustrated, but, um, these people on the bus are saving our lives. Mm. They, we really Mm. ought to valorize uses of transportation that are socially valuable. Um, mm-hmm. And we don't do that. Um, but, but anyway, even if for the person who's thinking, yeah, that sounds kind of nice, but I'm, I'm going to keep driving. Um, you're vulnerable too. Um, it's just that if you're killed, it'll be classified as a pedestrian. You won't, you may not, uh, you may not know that after the fact, um, but, uh, but we're all pedestrians at some point we should all care. Yeah. When I, and you know, 
going back to some of the distributional points that you made, I mean, it struck me in your paper and it's kind of been bothering me for a long time that in the conversation about kind of trying to change public policy around driving and subsidizing driving, there's this constant refrain of like, oh, well, if we do this, it's going to have, you know, bad distributional contact, uh, consequences for low income drivers. And that just seems to me like to totally miss the point that, you know, there's no reason that all these people should be driving in the first place. Yeah, I think um, I I would go a step further. Um, So what you're talking about is a larger, a bigger lift, right? You're saying, um, as I understand you, uh, in big cities, places that are transit rich, like New York, for example, which is now um, planning to implement a congestion pricing plan, you know, why are you driving um, when you have the subway or whatever as an option? Um, I would go a step further. I, you know, I think people who sort of gesture at um, the need for some people to drive are really concerned trolling and are actually cloaking themselves in social justice language um, when that's not their concern at all. Mm-hmm. The reason people oppose, say, congestion pricing or um, bus lanes, which in some states are illegal. It is unlawful to add a bus lane um, in some states and some counties of states. Um, They don't do it because they want the person who's disabled and needs to drive to the hospital to be able to do so, you know, 0.3 of a second faster. If that was what you wanted, you would create a regime centered around that purpose. What they want is for them, they themselves to be able to drive in in an unimpeded fashion Um, Mm. and they're just, they know that that's selfish. And so they are just reaching for the first thing at hand. Um, people with disabilities are hugely disadvantaged. They are uh, killed, um, by motorists at a huge disproportion. Um, the, uh, chance of being killed for a wheelchair user is 36% higher, um, killed by a motorist is 36% higher than the population as a whole for male wheelchairs between 50 and 64 wheelchair users between 50 and 64, the figure is 75%. So if you're a man, maybe a veteran, um, who's in a wheelchair at middle age, um, you have nearly the, nearly a double chance of being killed while you're using your wheelchair, um, than does the average person. And so, you know, the idea that we would defend high speed limits and wide roads um, and traffic rules that privilege motorists and a criminal law regime that punishes vehicular homicide less than, than other types of homicide. And, and by the way, a tort regime that says negligence, which is a permissive regime, applies rather than strict liability. The idea that we would defend this structure in the name of people with disabilities is bad faith. Mm. Um, frankly, it's outrageous and, and yeah. kind of offensive, but you see it quite often. Yeah. Well, and, and to add even another, I mean, you point out in the paper that the very design of cars like encourages speeding and other bad driving behaviors and increases risk to pedestrians and cyclists. Yeah. There's, you know, um, the, there's a history here, as, as there is with many of these things. At this point, cars have been part of our culture for about a century. So in the 1920s, during that period I mentioned when um, people were being killed en masse in cities, especially children. And um, so a city in Ohio, uh, 
can't remember if it was Cincinnati or Cleveland, was debating a, a regulation that would have required any car coming within the city limits to have a speed governor that disables the car from going over 25 miles an hour. Um, that is really what catalyzed all the auto interests to come together and self-identify as a um, constituency. So here I'm talking about not just car companies, but the oil companies, uh, highway manufacturing, um, tires, service, um, car dealers. There's, at this point, trillions of dollars a year in the economy invested in in the status quo uh, of excessive and risky driving. That's what got them together in the 1920s to, to take up common cause. Um, fast forward to today, where we see a proliferation of scooters, um, primarily Lyme and Bird, in some of the big cities in the country. And some cities are now requiring that these scooters be capped at 10 or 15 miles an hour in order to be legal. So it's the total reverse. And, and they do that without basically any opposition because there isn't a massive scooter industrial complex the way mm. there was even in the 20s for cars. Um, so they just overnight are passing these bills to cap scooters, which weigh you know, um, 20, 30 pounds or less uh, to, to, to cap their speed. But but you can drive a 7,500-pound Chevy Suburban as fast as can be. It may be unlawful to break the speed limit, but you know it's not like Chevrolet is required to cap its speed. That's not even that's a non-starter. Um, and so, yeah, that in that sense, the design does uh, especially harm pedestrians since pedestrians don't have a metal cage or airbags, et cetera, around them. Um, but also the design of vehicles, which is regulated by DOT um, through the uh, federal high, sorry, through the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration. Um, in 44 countries now, vehicles must be made to be safer to non-occupants, specifically to pedestrians. There are safer and less safe designs for people who are not in the vehicle. Um, and so in most of these countries are in Europe. So in you know, Germany or France or the UK, um, countries that are our peers, if you know you have if you sell cars you have to do so that minimizes negative externalities to the most vulnerable people um and uh that means the hood will crumple at a certain angle uh in certain places you know they do tests to figure out where people actually fall on the hood uh when they get hit by a motorist um and so that those areas have to be uh more responsive and so on and so forth um these are not on the table in the U.S., um, th this, there's a U.N. directive that provides a standard for this. Um, as I mentioned, several dozen countries have adopted it. Um, it's totally, uh, at least thus far, has been a non-starter in the U.S. Um, not That's a problem for pedestrians, a big mm -hmm. one, but it's also one for non-occupants of the vehicle. Um, so if you are driving a Ford Focus and you get hit by a Ford Expedition, there's a differential in the weight between those cars of something like 5,000, 4,000, 5,000 pounds. Um, interestingly, so number one, um, nobody requires that one of those cars be safer as a colliding vehicle. Um, all the design is focused on the, the vehicle itself protecting its own occupants. Mm. And then number two, if you're shopping for cars and you want to compare the safety of these two cars, um, you won't find any discussion of that differential. The IIHS, that is, which is the best known um, 
ratings agency for vehicle safety, the Institute for Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. It's a trade private group, uh, but also NHTSA, which is that highway uh, sub-agency of DOT that I mentioned. They also rate vehicles for safety. They rate by class, not not on an absolute scale. Um, and so you could buy a five-star, you know, top crash-tested small car, and it will just get demolished by a larger car. This is something that we maybe have in the back of our mind as intuitive, um, certainly at a huge disparity between like a tiny car and a huge, like a smart car and a Chevy Suburban. But, mm. but it's also true really for any car and an SUV. Um, there is a, uh, I believe is a physician um, who's in upstate New York, who's done some studies in connection with his medical school. Uh, of this, and even the top-rated, basically, you wanted you'd rather be in a low-rated SUV than a top-rated car if there's going to be a collision. I and mean, that's how bad the disparity is. And this information is just not out there unless you're, you know, digging up public health studies from research websites. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's not publicly disseminated, um, and that differential is allowed by law. Um, and the total absence of regulation for for pedestrians and for the safety of non-occupants is also allowed by law as opposed to our European and other counterparts where it's legally uh, required. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things I found like scandalous in your paper is the way that you point out that like, in addition, this kind of increased sense of safety that people have of to themselves when they're driving Mm -hmm. actually can make them more reckless with respect to other people. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a real problem. Um, that's a problem on several levels. So you do have a false sense of security when you're driving. Um, the human brain just cannot process, um, all of the full universe of, um, conflicts that can arise while driving, especially driving above like 25, 30 miles an hour. Um, you can imagine your vision of what you can see and what your brain can process in enough time to avoid hitting it. Um, so imagine a circle kind of extending forward from your car windshield. So the faster you go, the more that circle is shrinking. Um, and that's why when somebody gets hit by a car, sometimes the, often the driver will say they came out of nowhere. Well, they probably didn't come out of nowhere. You probably just didn't see them because you were going too fast. Um, maybe you were even going under the speed limit, but that does not mean uh, that you were driving at a safe speed in light of the conditions. Um, mm. So that's part of it. People have a false sense of security. They also have the protection of airbags and, um, and seatbelts and so forth. There are some studies suggesting that people engage in what's called risk compensation. Um, it's a form of moral hazard where because they feel safer, they take more risks. Um, on net, that probably works out for the people inside the car because you're better off with the airbags and the seatbelts and all the rest. Um, if you're outside the car, you don't benefit from any of that. So it's all downside. Um, beyond that, though, there's also this question of excessive driving. So we tend to think about reckless driving. Uh, we don't talk enough about that. We talk about distracted driving and drunk driving. We don't talk about speeding. It's not socially stigmatized nearly the way that the other behaviors are, um, yeah, I mean, but, Jesus, people brag about it. Yeah. People, oh, I made, I, I made good time. Um, but that's, that should be, you know, that's an admission of guilt, not something to brag about. Um, but anyway, we have a conception of reckless driving. What we don't have a conception of, we do for truck drivers, but not anybody else is excessive driving. Um, 
for human beings to maintain a consistent focus uh, is just hard. Uh, this is a concept known as the vigilance decrement in the psychological and neurological literature. Um, it's, a, it's a very, you know, that's a fancy way of saying um, the longer you do something that requires your concentration, the worse you're going to be at it. Um, and so by building in undense ways with sprawl, um, by requiring to basically requiring people to do very long commutes uh, in their cars, we're building in really locking in a certain minimum number of traffic collisions and casualties, uh, as well as all of the negative climate effects. Um, but the decrement really kicks in for the, the collisions um, and therefore for the, for the fatalities and injuries. Um, and that's, this is just totally absent from the policy conversation that actually urban sprawl is really physically dangerous for people. Yeah. So, so Greg, I mean, you've got me totally convinced that this is a really serious problem and we are through various like and assorted forms of policy, just consistently making the problem problem worse. Um, but it also seems like a really intractable problem in the sense that like there's this whole architecture of law and policy uh, and, 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 and even more than that, there's a kind of almost ideology of automobile ownership and of driving that just makes people fundamentally resistant to any alternative, not to mention any other kind of change. So, I mean, like, like in closing, like, what do we do about that? I mean, this seems like, you know, such a kind of almost quixotic sort of, um, crusade in the sense that like, you know, where do we even start with this? It's a huge problem. Um, I, I think it's going to take, it took us a hundred years to get into this mess and I hope it takes us less to get out. But, um, Brian, you may, you and I may not live, even if everything goes right, we may not live to see this be fully corrected. It's that bad. It's that embedded, um, in our economy, in our social institutions, in our laws. Um, that said, I eh, I don't want to call myself optimistic. I think that's overstating it, but I think I see causes for optimism. Um, I'll give you a few examples. So this Vision Zero uh, initiative that I mentioned has really shown great success where cities have not just pledged their uh, commitment to it, but have actually put real money behind it, have a Vision Zero budget, and have people who whose jobs are, you know, their job success is tied to the success of Vision Zero. So New York is the best example. They've, they've really made tremendous progress in, in reducing traffic deaths as a whole, but also the deaths of most vulnerable road users, um, pedestrians and cyclists and wheelchair users in particular. Um, the record there has been a little mixed, but, but I think on the whole, um, it's very positive and it's a model for a lot of other cities. They've also done congestion pricing now, um, that's been marketed as a way to raise revenue for public transit, which it is. Um, it's also talked about as a kind of green initiative, which it is. It will also cut traffic deaths. Uh, there are studies of this in other cities that have congestion zones, Stockholm, London, um, Singapore. And look, when you tax something, you get less of it. When you get less driving, you're going to get fewer people getting killed in car crashes. It's not complicated. Um, so I see that as a model. Um, LA, of all places, is now studying congestion pricing. I think it would actually be even more beneficial in LA because they have such a traffic problem. Um, so I see cause for optimism at the local level. 
in these Vision Zero initiatives and allied initiatives around managing transportation. Um, at the state level, we're seeing some bills to preempt some of the NIMBY um, ordinances that outlaw dense building, dense home building. Um, SB 50 is currently being debated in California. That's the nation's leading um, uh, piece of so-called YIMBY legislation, yes, in my backyard, to legalize the construction of slightly denser homes. You know, We're not talking about skyscrapers. We're talking about three, four-story apartment buildings for the most part that are specifically close to transit corridors. Um, that seems to be assembling the kind of political coalition that's needed. They, they made a similar effort. Scott Weiner is the the uh, state senator from San Francisco leading that. He made a similar effort last year that failed. He's built up a good coalition this time. We'll see what happens. Um, but I see that as cause for optimism. Um, again, back to New York, but on the state side, um, the city has secured, with the assistance of the governor, authorization to add way more speed cameras that they have outside of school zones or in school zones. Um, I think these should be expanded you know, citywide, but uh, but they've radically increased the number of speed cameras and also the hours that they are lawfully allowed to operate. There are lots of restrictions on when these when these things can operate. Um, so there's some success there. Um, you know, there are plenty of sources, plenty of reasons to be pessimistic, but I try to focus on the the plus side, um, partly because we have to make change and and we just have to stay motivated and grab on to the progress that we've been able to achieve. Um, and so, you know, will we ever fully, uh, undo this damage? I would say not, but if we can get to where Spain is, you know, between, uh, in about a 10 year period, um, recently Spain cut its traffic deaths by 75%. Wow. During that same period, we cut traffic deaths by a much smaller amount. And then since then our traffic deaths have gone up substantially, um, by about, by almost 30%. Um, so, you know, at the beginning of that window, they had trains, they had buses. Okay. They had way better bones in their cities for walkability because it's a really old country. They already had those advantages and they still had a huge number of traffic deaths, but through vision zero type redesigns, better enforcement, more sensible management of the road of public, you know, public rights of way, they cut traffic deaths by three quarters, you know? Um, so if we can do that, um, I think we'll be a lot better off than we are today. We will literally save tens of thousands of lives every year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Greg, thanks so much for talking with me about your paper today. And really, again, congratulations on this fantastic piece. I really look forward to seeing its impact and to seeing your further work on on the subject and um you know uh i really appreciate you you taking the time thanks brian great to talk with you
the future, helping our world move along. He's America's automobile man, marching at the head of the band. He's leading the way to a brighter today, and he's doing all that he can. All across America, he's found his way to a place in our community. He's always smiling and singing his song about America and living free. Helping you travel through this changing world, helping you get on your way. He's driving the highways of history, believing in today. And he's keeping America moving, keeping America strong, providing the wheels to the future. Helping our world move along He's America's automobile man Marching at the head of the band He's leading the way to a brighter today And he's doing all that he can Some folks think of him only in terms of new cars and weekend sales and next year's models But there's really much more to his story He's a real leader here in our community. He believes in the American way, and he's always one of the first to stand up and speak out about how it can be made even better. Yes, he's America's automobile man, and his business is just about as competitive as they come. I remember when he bought that old vacant lot down on the corner and moved his dealership into that new building he put up. I think you could say that he's made more than a sizable commitment and contribution to our city and the economy here. He has 70 people working for him now, and that's a lot of jobs. Some of his employees have been in the automobile business for over 25 years and probably know more about transportation and its future than a government investigating committee. He's proud of those people, too. Yes, he talks about them every day, just as if they were part of his own family. He's concerned about the role of transportation in America's future. Yes, he's come a long way since Henry Ford started it all, and I think that he can be trusted to keep America moving. America moving, keeping America strong, providing the wheels to the future, helping our world move along. He's America's automobile man, he's a neighbor, he's a friend, he's here to help and he cares about the things that matter. Future, helping our world move along. Yeah.